Welcome to The Purple Chair, a podcast from Clarion Solicitors. Clarion are one of the leading law firms in Leeds with a team of experienced and dedicated lawyers who are passionate about helping their clients achieve their goals. For Clarion, it's all about relationships. They know that strong partnerships create energy and deliver better results for you. In this podcast, we'll get to know some of Clarion's lawyers, reveal some of the law surrounding pop culture, and find out how Clarion's holistic approach develops effective and practical long-term client solutions by fully understanding both the business and the prevailing market. I'm Ian Brannan, and in this episode, business acquisition can be an attractive way to build a business, reduce costs, and improve your market share, but it comes with many legal, financial, and ethical challenges. If you've never done it before, that first deal is a real learning curve. And actually, maybe not even just the first, the first two, three, you're going to learn different things every time. Identifying, assessing, and mitigating the consequences of a crisis or emergency situation have become a priority since COVID caught much of the world by surprise. How can crisis impact management minimise any negative effects on your organisation or business? Having the plan is key and often that plan is missing because it's something that they maybe didn't think about before. But first, banking and finance law regulates the complex relationships and transactions within the financial industry. Let's find out more from a Clarion partner who's worked their way to the top of their field. Our first guest today joining us in the purple chair is Marie Pugh, a partner at Clarion and head of the banking and finance team. Hello, Marie. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, first off, what was your route into the law and into Clarion? At the time, a very long time ago now, it wasn't usual to take the route I took, actually. I did go to university and I did a non-law degree and a conversion. But at that point in time, everybody got training contracts. And if you didn't get one immediately, it was seen as some kind of disaster. Whereas I was very much, um, I'd come from a background that I was the first person to go to university. We weren't very well off. And I wanted to know I was actually going to like the job that I was going to do. So I deliberately sought a job as a paralegal and came through as a very junior member of the team at the time, which was a, a very much smaller firm then. And yeah, and kind of proved, proved yourself on the job, if you like. And I think it's fair to say one of the things that is important to Clarion and, and to me personally is making sure that you are always fostering opportunities for people that don't come from families with a, the usual economic and social advantages that you, you see a lot in, in the legal profession. So you started out in, in property law, which is an area we have previously covered uh, on this podcast series. But how did you make your move into, into banking and finance? I would say it was a natural progression. I qualified in the midst of the global financial crisis, 2007 and going into 2008. And as people may recall, at that time, you know, property development kind of came to a grinding halt and lending was very difficult. But I got a lot of experience at that time on Unusual property transactions, um, you know, distress transactions, corporate support, restructurings, things where people needed speedy solutions. And it was there that I really got involved in the funding side of things. Initially, as a property lawyer, I was doing due diligence on assets that are going to be offered as security to a lender. And then a natural progression from there, really, becoming more specialist in that particular area. And then as the team grew and developed and we gathered more specialists into the team, We've grown into providing a wider area of services. So banking and finance is uh, obviously a big, broad sector, but specifically, what sort of services does your team provide to clients? Everyone you talk to will say, oh, we do everything, we offer everything, but it's probably easier to describe the transactions that we support. So there would be the usual corporate transactions, 
acquisitions of assets, acquisitions of other companies, funding for growth, which is important in the current climate, restructuring and refinancings. But they're the standard fare, if you like, for a banking and finance team. I think we would also cover all other types of asset financing. So stock, trade, receivables. And particularly in our team, we have a a number of people with real estate finance specialism, and that's just, you know, portfolios, investments, developments. So it's it's more the range of activities rather than the day-to-day services, if you like. Yeah, well, on that, that's the next question, really. What are the day-to-day services? What is the, what is the bread and butter for you? For me personally, it's, it's interesting. As a, um, one of three partners in the team, we have a really interesting role. We do, we're at the sharp end doing lots of stuff for long-standing and new clients where it genuinely is a partner-led service that you offer. What I would say is that for me personally, my day-to-day will consist heavily of giving some strategic advice to clients. So I get a lot of calls from some of our clients and lenders where they say, this is what we want to do and can we actually do it and how do we actually do it? And for me, it's that part of the transaction that's the most interesting bit, which is help them get it right at the outset and say, actually, I know you want to do this, but from a regulatory perspective, it doesn't work or have you thought about structuring it in a different way? That's probably, It's that added value aspect that really interests us on a day-to-day basis. And obviously working with such a broad range of clients in different circumstances, you're not really ever going to have a situation where you've got a one size fits all arrangement. Um, Every client's different. How do you manage that? Well, every client is different. But what I would say is that they all have different demands, different needs. And some of the lenders, the, the big high street banks, you kind of know what to expect for them. You know, the market they're in, their risk appetite, how they do their funding. And then we We also have a range of lenders and borrowers that aren't regulated in the normal way that offer business loans to small businesses and they are governed by a different set of rules to the high street banks. And so from our point of view, what what I would say is that we take our experience and the ability to the service that we offer, the speed, the turnaround and the due diligence, and we can adapt that from a large transaction to the the kind of the non-standard alternative lending that's really important in the current economy, actually. It's always good to hear some some actual real success stories, just to hear the difference really that you you might have made. Can you give us any particular stories where you've where you've helped out? I think from my point of view, there there are a couple of success stories. I mean, the the first one would obviously be our team itself. We we went from a team of four people in probably 2015, 2016 to a team of 20. We've increased our own team income sixfold over that period of time and have a huge range of experience. But The really nice thing is that we've also, there were a lot of lenders born immediately before and during the global financial crisis. And we've grown with them, we've grown together, and they've been our clients through that whole period. And it's really interesting to see those lenders and how they've really contributed both regionally and nationally in that small business space where banks always haven't been able to offer people funding that they need. And those lenders and that kind of different type of support, we're one of the teams that work with a lot of these alternative lenders and their contribution can't be underestimated. For anybody listening to this who's running their own business Mm -hmm. or organisation, what are the current trends in banking and finance law that you're seeing now that maybe people should be aware of? Some interesting ones that I think will actually be useful to people. One is a bit dry um, and that is that um, Basel three regulations, the government has decided to bring them into force July next year with a, a a four to five year transitional period. What that means in short is this is to do with the capitalization of the, the actual banks and making sure that they maintain liquidity with the idea behind it that 
Um, if you remember the financial crisis, there was an issue about banks being too big to fail and bailouts and all that sort of thing. And so the purpose of the regulations is to try and shore that up so that it doesn't happen again. From a business's point of view, what will be interesting to see happens is how does that actually affect people's appetite to lend? Is it going to mean that some lending is not going to become available anymore because banks have got this additional requirement to keep capital and maintain liquidity and assess risk in a different way? So it's going to be interesting to see how that pans out over the next five years. I think the other very important point that's coming down on the horizon, it's to do with the climate change agenda, net zero agenda. In the financing world, we are seeing over the last you know 12 to 24 months climate finance if you like now these are there are some obvious um categories of this is a green loan and a green loan is something for a green project you know we are funding an, a power station a wind farm they're the obvious ones but it can be a small business wanting to install their own biomass plant just to generate power for their own factory and help with their own utility costs so those loans are becoming more prevalent the more difficult ones that will be key actually in the economy the contribution of business to moving this agenda forward is key. And if you're a large corporate, you have deep pockets, you can employ people to support the sustainability agenda, you can pay for the additional reporting requirements. If you're a small business, it's very difficult for them. And I've talked to a lot of people over the last year who were really keen to do something to get on the sustainability agenda to improve their business and their operations. But they're constrained by time. They're constrained by money in the current climate. They've got cost issues. And the second category of loans is sustainability loans. So if you are a small business, you can go to the lenders that are offering these loans. And if you can agree performance indicators, sustainability indicators, you basically get what's known as a greenium. You get a better rate on your loan. But You've obviously got to deal with all the reporting that you meet in the targets. You've got to manage it on a day-to-day basis. So it's a trade-off between is the financial incentive for taking that loan, does that outweigh the burden that it puts on small business? And until we all get that right, it's going to be very difficult to move that agenda forward. And so over the next five years, it's how do we square that circle? How do we help small business participate in becoming more sustainable and make it easier and cost-effective for them to do it? Something else that's very hard to to keep up with, I guess, is technology mm-hmm. as well, especially when we're talking about banking and money. Cash, obviously, used much less than, than ever it was. And, you know, digital means, you've also got threats from people around the world who are looking to get hold of your money as well. That must be moving at quite a pace, keeping up with that side of things. It is. I mean, there's various aspects to it. I suppose there's, there's the, the general cybersecurity issues that people have when dealing with financial transactions. And, you know, you have to make sure you've got robust processes in place to, to manage on the transactional side. But a lot of the legal profession has both been excited and frightened by AI, actually, because there's a people worry that it's going to come and take your jobs. The same as you know, across the whole the whole world, people are thinking about that, aren't they? But I think you have to look at it as an opportunity and recognise that AI is a tool; it's not the answer. So you know, you see a lot of discussion about ChatGPT and its latest incarnations and giving legal opinions and doing kind of basic work. But I think, from our point of view, you can use it as a tool to improve service for the client, make things faster, provided that you're not wholly reliant on it. No AI tool is going to be able to strategize and add value for your client in the way that we do. And speaking of that, Clarion, of course, are here to help. How can someone with a banking or finance issue get in touch with you for advice? We have our contact details on the website. We actually much prefer it if people give us a a call directly and our direct contact numbers are all there. 
we are obviously all on social media and you can also reach out to us. But no AI version of you yet. Not yet. Not yet. (laughs) Good stuff. It'll be interesting to see how that would pan out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to speak to the real deal, get in touch with Clarion and speak to Marie. Thank you very much for joining us, Marie. Not a problem. Lovely to join you. This is The Purple Chair, a podcast from Clarion Solicitors. What we've learnt from the last few years is that crises can appear from nowhere with very little warning. In a business context, an unforeseen crisis could lead to financial loss, legal or stakeholder issues, reputational damage or loss of employee morale. Let's find out more about crisis impact management from Lucy Alderson, who's an associate at the regulatory team at Clarion. Hello, Lucy. Hi. So what does the regulatory team do and how did you find yourself working in this branch of law? So to to answer that first part, I trained at a large international firm um, and I did a six month seat in the regulatory team there. And that kind of sparked my interest in this area. So I I went on to qualify into regulatory and that's what I do here at Clarion, where I've been for about four years now. So the team deal with anything, as the name would suggest, with the regulatory angle, health and safety to environmental, trading standards, product safety, anything that has a kind of criminal regulatory angle. So that could be anything from a sort of investigation by a regulator like the HSC or a local authority. But I also deal with the non-contentious sort of compliant advisory element to it. So that can be on things like product safety or health and safety. So it's a very kind of broad ranging area that deals with the contentious side to the investigatory side, but also advisory work in that context too. Crisis impact management sounds like a very dramatic phrase. First off, what is it? What does it mean in in your terms? So a crisis, it's something that's very different to just business interruption. A lot of businesses will have um, what's called business continuity plans and, and that's fairly standard. But crisis is something that's really quite different from that. It's usually quite a sudden and unexpected event. And with that comes the dramatic and and high impact that that brings with it. So usually after a crisis, that brings significant legal consequences. And it can also have very damaging reputational impacts or financial instability, which can result in a reduction in stakeholder trust confidence. So it's something that's far more broad reaching than just usual business disruption. And it can have far reaching and and wide reaching consequences throughout the business. I think kind of the best way that I would describe it is something that kind of has the ability to really shatter the core of the business. And in that sense, it's something that could effectively bring the business to its knees, whether that be from a financial position or or actually reputationally as well. Do you have any recent examples then of, of crisis situations that you've been involved in at Clarion that in, to give people an idea of the sort of things that we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I'm involved at the moment in a recent case and for obvious reasons, I can't be too specific about the detail of that. I'm acting at the moment for a large organisation where there's been a fatality involving a member of the public in quite horrendous circumstances, really, as you would imagine. And I think the reason that I'm kind of talking about this example specifically is actually what is often the case with crisis is that there's actually a really big human element to it that I think we have to remember in all of these examples. 
in the example I'm talking about, it was actually employees that found the deceased. So as much as we're talking about the crisis from the business, reputational, financial perspective, we're actually also thinking about the human elements that are involved. And actually in the case I'm dealing with at the minute, it's about getting these individuals the support that they need. So trauma counselling that these people have, have never been involved in a situation like this before and actually taking the human element to one side and focusing on that too is, is something that we as lawyers have to manage as well. So that, that's a slightly different angle, but that's something that at the moment I am dealing with. What challenges do crises generally throw up in an organisation? Uh, looking at the broad picture, what, what are the things that an organisation are, are going to really have to face? It usually has a cross-operational and multifunction response that's required. So as you can imagine, you know, say say the example I've just spoken about where there's been a, a fatality involving a member of the public, usually in the immediate aftermath, you're going to have regulatory interest. So depending on what it is, that might be the HSC, that is usually the police if there's been a death. So it's about managing the response to that. In the immediate aftermath, the company will often want to start what's called an, its internal investigation. So as part of that, it will be bringing in various support. So that will be legal. That will be managing brand and PR. It might be bringing in, like I've just mentioned, psychological support, trauma support. So there'll be various strands that need to be brought together. And, and that has to happen pretty quickly in the immediate aftermath. And for a lot of organisations, that's where your plan, which I'll come on to in a moment, that's where the plan is key because it's bringing all of those strands together to make sure that everybody knows what they're doing and what the response is going to be because there's a lot that happens in the immediate aftermath. And you mentioned there about the plan being key. You've got to have a plan, but sometimes in a, in a time of chaos like this, that can be the thing that goes out of the window. So tell us about the advantages of, of crisis impact management. And I guess you would call it really what is, you know, having the plan. Yeah, absolutely. Having the plan is key. And, and it's a lot of what we have found from working with various clients over the years that that is often missing because it's something that they maybe didn't think about before. I mean, it's until something happens that they maybe reflect and think that that a plan would have helped them manage the situation. So it is key for organisations to really think about the key risks that are affecting their business. So I often phrase it as, well, what would keep you awake at night? What does your doomsday scenario look like? And what are the key risks to your business? And I think that forms the basis of your ability to formulate a crisis management plan. Yeah, that was one of the next questions, really. How do you begin to plan for a kind of event? Because obviously, I think sometimes a crisis can be very specific. It can come to you at short notice. Sometimes it's not something you can plan for. It just comes completely out of left field. But how do you come up with a, with a general plan for an event that might hit a business? You've got to consider where your business would be most vulnerable identify from within the business what that crisis situation would look like. Think about the greatest assets of your business and situations that might represent an attack on those assets. So think about what is your definition of a crisis event? 
and that's factors that aren't necessarily specifics. Think about your crisis management team. So what are the roles? What are the responsibilities within that team? What are the actions that are necessary by those individuals? And things like frameworks. So putting together maybe off the shelf PR statements that you could utilize in the event of a crisis. They're all things that you can do ahead of that happening that will help your ability to manage the crisis if it does happen. You must see it all. Do you have any examples of of businesses that have handled a crisis well, though, or, or indeed not so well? There's a couple of examples that sort of spring to mind, one which is a a positive example of of a crisis response and the other that's a not so positive example. So I start with the the not so positive. It's a case that you might remember. It, it was back in 2015 involving Thomas Cook with the death of two children who died of carbon monoxide poisoning on a holiday in Corfu. I won't go into sort of the details of the actual case because actually the thing I want to talk about is their response to the crisis. This is kind of widely seen as the start of the demise of Thomas Cook, and it's generally accepted as being directly linked to their failure to manage this crisis. In direct response to the death of these two children, obviously there was a regulatory investigation and their own internal investigation, but there was a sort of a blatant failure for the company to be seen to be apologising for the incident and they kind of hid behind legal advice um, and that was kind of their reason for not apologising. There were sort of various aspects to it, but the organisation set up charities in the children's names but didn't consult with the parents about it, really a lack of sensitivity towards the families of the children and and a big criticism of them was was ultimately a failure to properly address the media and PR. So conversely an example that seemed to be a good example of a crisis response was the Alton Towers disaster which was the crash of the Smiler roller coaster which resulted in four teenagers becoming seriously injured absolutely horrendous accident which had you know wide-ranging consequences but the big sort of response of the CFO in this case was an immediate apology for what had happened and they weren't worried about issuing that apology they weren't seeking to hide behind legal advice and they were quite open and transparent about the fact that they were sorry for what had happened. There was full public disclosure of their investigation and the findings and the improvements that they made. And they really put the victims and the victims' families at the centre of of their investigation and their response to this. And, And it was clear in the way that they managed this crisis that actually they were the important part of this and that actually the improvements that were being made were largely with them in the centre of it all. So both of their responses just kind of highlights the importance of getting your narrative and your response to this crisis you want it to be as well thought out as possible. Some crises can be within your own making, but then there's others that come out of nowhere that nobody's expecting. COVID then, did anybody have a pandemic on their crisis management bingo card? Being honest, I think COVID kind of put this whole topic and agenda on people's radar. COVID is something that has sparked a lot of organisations to look into their crisis management more generally. But even going further than that, I think it has just made people realise the disastrous consequences that these events can have on the core of their business. 
A crisis is most likely something that's unexpected, a sudden high impact event that's going to wreak all sorts of uh, havoc upon a business. But can a crisis happen more slowly? Can they creep up on you? Absolutely. We've been involved in the team in, in a lot of instances where a crisis event has resulted from things that have been bubbling under the surface for quite some time. You might have convenient but unofficial workaround strategies being the normal sort of routine. So it might be where you have an organisation that is under unrealistic schedules or you have personnel shortages. And so your workaround strategies become normal routine to help manage that. But actually all that happens is over time that can result in a serious sort of crisis type situation. Are there any standards or guidance on crisis planning? That's a really good question. There is actually a recent British standard that has been published and that's something that we would always encourage organisations to read and certainly be aware of because it provides a really useful framework in which organisations can start to plan their crisis management A few sort of overarching principles of that British standard are maintaining a comprehensive record and a policy log of decisions taken. Ensure the people who are given crisis management roles are actually competent to perform those roles. So make sure people are trained, make sure people understand what their role is and and what they're there to do. Achieve control as, as much as possible. And also learn from mistakes and make changes to prevent reoccurrence. A lot of organisations that have have been through crisis events, a lot of their behaviours going forward aren't shaped by learnings and actually acting on where it maybe went wrong in the past to make sure that doesn't happen again. Another one of those principles is effective leadership at all levels. You know, be prepared with clear, universally understood structures and roles and responsibility. Make sure people understand what they are there to do. Make sure that plan is communicated properly. And if there's a a business owner listening to this and they are thinking, "Hmm, I probably need to get my plan together here just in case, what sort of things do they need to do to, to look into crisis impact management? And what's that one thing that you would advise all businesses to do now in in this regard? It's planning that's key, I think. And that's something that we can certainly help with is actually allowing and enabling businesses to actually understand their own risks. Because sometimes that it sounds like a really simple thing to do, but but sometimes it isn't actually easy to decipher within your own organisation what your key risks would be and your key challenges and, and how you might overcome that. My key takeaway is to think about that, get help and advice where you you need that and actually start to think about how you're going to set up a plan where you don't have one. And businesses that maybe do have a plan, review that plan, have a look at it, make sure that it works. I mean, something that we do with a lot of clients is actually helping them kind of do a bit of a dummy run of their plan. What you don't want to end up doing is actually testing your plan when the crisis happens and realising it's not fit for purpose. So that's something that we actually do with a lot of clients is testing, stress testing their own plan, keeping it under review, making sure it still works. Clearly, if you do find yourself in a crisis, then uh, Clarion are here to help. What should people do then if they find themselves uh, in the midst of a crisis and uh, to call in the experts like yourself? 
getting in touch the earlier, the better, really. It's likely that there will be regulatory interest in that very early on. It's important that when organisations are conducting their own internal investigations, that they make sure they're getting the right advice on how they are to be conducting that investigation. The earlier, the better, really, in managing that response. Well, it's been great speaking with you. Clearly, your, uh, your, your job is uh, dealing with, with lots of crises, but uh, hopefully um, you're there to, to help anybody that, uh, that does need that. Thank you very much. This is The Purple Chair, a podcast from Clarion Solicitors. I'm Ian Brannan, and every episode we like to explore one of the themes that Clarion excel in. And in this episode, let's chat about business acquisition with Sarah Harrison, a Clarion partner who specialises in this area, and Fergus Bailey of The Bailey Group. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Fergus. Welcome to The Purple Chair. Hi. Thanks for having us. Hi. Sarah, to you first. Um, business acquisitions are complex, of course, and it's not just about buying the business, but also about the preparation beforehand, the due diligence and planning for the longer term. So just an overview, really, about the processes. Yes. And you've already mentioned one of the first things, which is due diligence. So you might have decided you want to buy something for whatever reason that is, and, and we'll come on to that later. But you've got to figure out if what you're buying is what you think you're buying. <laughs> so looking at the business, really getting under the hood, finding about about the assets, the people, and we'd focus on the legal elements of that, but actually there's all sorts of other elements of that. So you'd also be looking at the financial due diligence, operational and cultural, actually. If you're going to integrate this business into your business, culturally, how does that fit and how are you going to make that work post-completion? So that due diligence process is probably the longest bit of the process, I would have said. And then once you've decided you do want to go ahead and you want to buy it, because it's what you think it is, or if not what you thought it was to start with, at least something you now want to buy. There's a legal process. There's lots of documents involved. There's lots of negotiation involved. And that process is probably more intense than people think. So whoever's working on the deal definitely needs to make time in their daily routines for this because you underestimate just how distracting it can be. So getting the deal done. And then once you've done it, it's making sure that the reason you bought it, you then follow through on. Because I think a lot of people probably make the mistake of going, right, we've, we've bought it, great, let's move on, rather than going, okay, well, now we need to make sure we're integrating it properly. We're identifying the synergies to make the most of and optimise those things that we identified in this business that made us want to buy it in the first place. So it's a really long, drawn-out process, actually, start to finish. And fortunately, my bit is uh, sort of the pressure point in the middle and then I sort of um, will hand over to Fergus <laughs> to, to do the business bit. So this is a bit of a, a case study, of course, and, and Fergus is with us now of the Bailey Group. Just first question, really, an overview of about what your business is and, and what you do. Bailey Group uh, is a family-owned group of agencies and consultancies. We're a group of four companies spread all across the UK. We employ about 450 people, turn over about 50 million. And we specialize in professional services really around creating, gathering, protecting and distributing content and data. For the first 20 years of its life, it was a printing group. Um, that was everything we did was printing, packaging, publishing all across the UK. Then round about the late 1990s with the advent of technology and the internet, Print was declining, the market had overcapacity, uh, and the decision was taken to move out of print. And that was the start of our uh, move into professional services. So as a printing group, we bought a lot of printing companies. Then the next 10 years was really selling off the printing companies and starting to buy professional services agencies. 
Why did you decide to get involved in those businesses that, that you have invested in, in those acquisitions that you made? For us, it was around moving into a new area, but not too far removed from what we knew. And all of them at the time had synergies with what we did. So the first company we bought was a company in Leeds called CDS. And at the time, the biggest part of CDS was print management. So it was using technology and professional services to aggregate a supply chain of printers on behalf of clients. They were a customer of the printing group. So it made sense to make an upstream acquisition to get closer to the customer, get more control. And then we could start to divest of the manufacturing aspects and make our money from the professional services. Over time, then they've turned into completely different businesses through different strategy, become more technical, more digital, more into kind of cybersecurity and data and cloud. But at the time, it was looking at how can we supplement what we do? How can we add value to what we do? How do we move away from manufacturing, but do that in one step removed rather than go into something that we really didn't know or understand? Sarah, just tell us about the benefits of, of acquisitions for businesses. The reasons you might acquire a business are, are many and varied. I think Ferguson's is a really good example of evolution to survive, realistically. But it might be that you just want to grow. And actually, sometimes the easiest and the quickest way to grow is go and buy something else that does what you do and does it well, adds numbers onto the balance sheet straight away. It might be you want to grow by developing into a new service line, new product. It might be that somebody has technology you don't have. Integrating that technology into your business might also help your own business grow quicker. It might be you want to get, do you know, a really specialised team. You might have identified some people who are just really good at what they do and you're buying the people and not really anything else. You might be buying to break into new territories. And actually at the moment with the economy as it is, we have a lot of inbound purchases internationally thinking now is a really good time to buy into the UK and get a foothold here. The key is understanding why you're doing it and keeping that purpose in mind throughout the process. And Fergus, with, with that in mind, how do you identify target businesses that would fit within the Bailey Group? So the way our group runs is each company sets a three-year plan. Um, and then within that three-year plan, there are growth aspects that they want to achieve. So each company looks at, do they want to develop new services? Do they want to grow the existing services? Do they want to enter new markets? And I guess with each of those, we look at, do we build or buy? We look at the new services we want to create, the markets that we want to move into, and the skill sets that we think we need. And then I guess there's two lenses that we would put on it. There's the proactive lens, where we would actively go into the market and we would look for businesses that meet that criteria. I guess the other lens is then being reactive. And I think we've always been an entrepreneurial group because we're a family-owned business. We can react quite quickly when opportunities come up. We've always tried to retain resources to allow us to do that, to be flexible. But we like to think that as long as it fits with our strategy and our purpose, and our purpose is to invest in people and ideas that make a positive difference, then we'll react um, when the opportunities came up. In the last three years, we've made three acquisitions. And each of those have come from people we know and networks that we know, and they've helped us diversify our services and move into sectors where we didn't quite have referenceability. Sarah, what then now happens once a client's identified a business to acquire? How do you then get involved? What's the process? The beginning point is probably slightly different every time because clients will come to us at different points in their process. Fergus is very obliging and will come to us with an already agreed set of heads of terms. So the heads of terms set out what the commercial deal is, the price, any other relevant terms that go in there. 
but actually lots of clients need help with that. Normally they still need to understand within their own mind what the commercial terms are, but we can give them a bit of help in terms of one, our experience of what's normal and two, certainly on larger transactions, you probably want those heads of terms to be more detailed because if there are going to be deal breakers, you are better off flushing them out at that point than spending 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 grand on advisor's fees to find out six months from now that you really want the managing director to stay on and the managing director really does not want to stay on. So I think negotiating the heads of terms properly is really key to make sure you don't waste everybody's time and money. And then once you've done that and all parties are aligned on where we're going and what we're doing, our next bit of the process would be the due diligence, which I mentioned earlier. So we would typically sit down with Fergus or Fergus's equivalent and say, okay, what about this business do we need to be understanding? So it's working collaboratively with a client to say, what is most important to you? And then potentially saying to the client, okay, well, you might not have thought about this, but we think this is a big risk area for you that we need to look at as well. So we then agree the scope of that and then we just do a bit of digging. So we would look at the target business. We ask for a lot of documents and we spend a lot of time looking at them to see if we find any issues. Fingers crossed we don't, or at least if we find any issues, it's something that we can fix or some other kind of modification to the deal terms. And assuming that all goes okay, we would move to negotiating the actual transaction documents. From a buyer's perspective, we would be looking to protect them in the event that something comes out afterwards that was not what was presented beforehand. So it's giving the buyer those opportunities to go back and seek compensation effectively from the sellers. You might also have a lot of ancillary paperwork. You might need a new lease. You might need intellectual property assigning. So there's all sorts of other legal documents that we might get involved with. And then we complete the deal and then we get everything signed and we get it done. But Fergus sounds like he's making life first as easy as he can for Fergus you. Fergus is a these. dream. <laughs> <laughs> but what what are the legal considerations, you know, the critical things that clients should be aware of when entering into business acquisitions or mergers, the things to, to really take into account? It's going to be slightly different in different sectors. It's going to be slightly different because, as I said, you need to figure out what's most important to the client. But there are some kind of common themes that would run through lots of transactions. So, for example, intellectual property. We often find that the company you're buying doesn't own the intellectual property you think it does. As soon as you use a third-party consultant to create something, that consultant owns that IP. So you may well think you are buying something that owns its own website, and often it doesn't. You also need to look at contracts, because a lot of contracts will have what's called a change of control clause, which basically says, if you sell this business, we have the right to terminate this contract. Now, don't go wrong, lots of contracts have that and will never enforce it. If you're looking at a business where you are buying it because you want the key contracts, that becomes a real risk area because you, the thing you think you're buying could disappear on the day of completion. Data protection for B2B businesses, maybe not so high risk, but anything with a lot of individual personal data. The fines that the ICO can levy for failure to comply with data protection laws are really significant now. It's 4% of your global turnover. So understanding compliance with that and various other types of laws. So lots of businesses will have their own different regulatory requirements. And then I think it's just flushing out disputes and unknown liabilities. So I actually did a transaction recently where out of the woodwork, a former employee got wind of the deal. And it turned out that on this person's exit, they'd signed a settlement agreement that entitled them to £800,000 compensation in the event of a sale of the business. And that came out three days before 
the deal completed. That's not an insignificant amount. That is not an (laughs) insignificant amount. So you can imagine some very last minute scrabbling to renegotiate the terms of that deal. So yeah, like I say, it's it's a difficult one to answer because it is different on every deal and we never quite know what we're going to find or what will come out of the woodwork. Fergus, for you, um, obviously you've been through this process a few times now with Clarion, working with Sarah in your acquisition strategies. How have you found working with Clarion? from your point of view? No pressure. Million dollar question. This is is the hardest question. Do you want me to step out? (laughs) No, um, I mean, Clarion have been brilliant. Uh, I mean, there's a reason why we keep coming back to them and why we use them, not just for M&A, but also for other commercial aspects and contracts and people's side. You know, they're a friendly bunch, positive and proactive. And most importantly, when you come to M&A, Number one, they're experts in what they do, right? So if if you need guidance in it and you need coaching through it and you need help and be that heads of terms, be that share purchase and legal documentation, due diligence, they make sure that every base is covered. But I think for us, most importantly, is Sarah and her team are really pragmatic, which is, I think, one of the key things to getting a deal done. You know, I've worked in environments before where lawyers will tell you what you can and can't do. And it's very black and white. And if if you went down the letter of the law, you'd never do a deal. Entrepreneurs are often rash and often just want to get it done at all costs. So I think there's definitely a balance to be struck between the guidance and the legal advice and the entrepreneurial rashness. But I've always found rather than saying this is a deal breaker, there's more of a nuanced conversation about understanding the risk, which is important because ultimately that's what I have to decide. And I have to decide what risk I'm comfortable with taking. And once you've completed the acquisition and and you're in charge of, of the new company, that's really when the hard work starts, isn't it? Because now you're in charge, you've got to then integrate this business into your group and not just the business, but also people as well. So how do you manage all that situation once you've, once you've completed everything? Yeah, I think that's a, a critical part of the pre-completion planning and probably one that we didn't appreciate on the first deal that we did. So we, we've done a few deals and we've refined and, and honed that process. So now in, when we're doing the first deal, we'll do the due diligence, several rounds of that, we'll negotiate the contract terms, but in the background, we'll be doing our three-month planning. And and we've got a kind of a matrices that we follow now, looking at all aspects from, are we going to integrate them into the business or are we going to run them standalone? How are we going to communicate internally and externally? How are we going to get our arms around the organization, the staff, onboard them, make them feel like part of the group? And what's the culture like? And how are we going to integrate that culture rather than kill it um, within our organization? So, we kind of got a long list of things we look at and then we break that down into three sections and we say, okay, what do we have to do on day one? What needs to be done on that first day visibly to be seen to make a difference? Reassure people and start the process moving. What needs to be done on month one and what needs to be done the first three months? And we've got a team that comes together and then we start to pull people from the acquired team into that team so they feel that they're part of that decision-making process. And that first three months is kind of critical for that. And Fergus, you've done a few acquisitions now, as as we've heard about. What's your one big piece of advice for anybody looking to acquire a business? Other than getting the right lawyers. Well, of course, that goes without saying. (laughs) So uh, I'm going to cheat and say there's probably three things that I would have learned and I would take into future planning. So one would be speed of integration. That is something that has to be done incredibly quickly. 
people are humans at the end of the day and uncertainty creates anxiety. So if you do have to make changes and you do have to reduce headcount, you have to merge teams together or physically bring teams together. Um, and even if you're not doing that and you're looking at building on what you're getting, you need to get your arms around the people quickly. Um, you need to integrate quickly. You need to make changes quickly. Number two is visibility is critical. As an acquirer, you're an unknown. Um, the people who uh, you're buying don't know you and you're buying them for a reason. You're buying them because you think that they're going to add value. And that has to be communicated quickly. You have to be visible. You have to get your arms around them and make them feel like they're part of the new group, the new company, whatever it is. And I think the final thing is not to be afraid to walk away. I think the very first deal I did, there were red flags through the process. And with hindsight, some of those red flags were probably showstoppers. Now, it wasn't a very big deal. It was relatively small and there was a strategic reason why we wanted to do it. But I probably bypassed the red flags in an interest to get the deal completed. You know, I hadn't acquired a business before. It was all very exciting. It felt like a real move in the group dimension to get this in and get it done. And did it work? Not really. When I look back, I could see the warning signs were there that we kind of pushed past. Now it was a learning curve and we deliberately set out on our first deal to do a relatively small acquisition so we could learn, we could cut our teeth and we could improve. And that that was probably the biggest learning. It didn't deliver what we thought it would deliver. And when we look back, there were no real surprises in that and we should have spotted that earlier. So avoid the white line fever. And if there are reasons why you think you really should walk away, then don't be afraid to, to walk away. And Sarah, what's your one big piece of advice for anybody looking to acquire a business? I would definitely say get the right advisors around you. And that's not just lawyers, that's tax advisors, accountants, if you need it, corporate finance. Because like Fergus said, if you've never done it before, that first deal is a real learning curve. And actually, maybe not even just the first, the first two, three, you're going to learn different things every time. So there's no way to get past the fact that you will learn a lot. But actually, if you've got people around you who have done this before, they can help and they can fill in some of those gaps and they can give you the benefit of their market experience. And how do people get in touch? What's the best way to find out more about Clarion's business acquisition services? What I hope has come through in this chat is every business acquisition is going to be different and every client is different. Every client's approach is different. Every client's goals, objectives and risk appetite. So. One of the things Fergus said was that he likes that we're really pragmatic because Fergus is pragmatic. I won't necessarily do that with every client because some clients have a different worldview to Fergus. So if a client is more risk averse, then I will be more risk averse because I know that's what the client needs from me. So I think if you want to find out more about us, give us a call because the best thing you can do is talk to us so that we can understand you, we can understand your business And then I can explain to you how we can help you in the way that best serves you and the way you want to do it. Fantastic. Well, it's been great chatting with you both. And uh, thanks again, Sarah. And thank you, Fergus. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Purple Chair, a podcast from Clarion Solicitors. And please don't forget to hit subscribe and rate it as well. To find out more about how Clarion can help you or your business, head to clarionsolicitors.com. Until next time, from me, Ian Brannan, and my guests, Sarah, Fergus, Lucy, and Marie, goodbye. Goodbye.